and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett and today is all about how to change your belief about yourself and coming from the experts that have managed to do this, they're remarkable human beings, they've got stories of courage, facing their fears and doing things that you don't think you can do and it's not by doing the big things, it's by doing the small things, having little small micro experiments, they call it micro adventures and as we head towards the end of the year, what a great thing to, for us to think about how to finish the year and then how to start 2023. So I hope you really enjoy this compilation. It is probably the most difficult thing for people to make change is belief. That's a belief about ourselves, a belief about um, even what we eat, how we think, and all of these things that we've inherited over many generations. And so what I've done is put together a, a compilation of thoughts from leaders in the field like Kurt Fernley, one of our great Paralympians, through to Alice Betts, who is a PR manager in Scandinavia, learning three languages, to thrive in her field. These are the things that people were able to do, even though they didn't think they could, and the courage it took to change their belief about themselves. So I hope you take something wonderful away from these great conversations with these superb people from around the world, and I hope you enjoy this. Our guest is Sarah Lemaquand, uh, who's the founding editor-in-chief of Stella, which is the country's most read Sunday magazine. And also, in addition, she's the editor-in-chief of Body and Soul, which is Australia's leading health media brand. Already, I don't know how you do it. Um, so welcome to our podcast, Sarah. Thank you, Selena. A pleasure. I know I felt a bit tired listening to that. <laughs> it's I, true, I, though. And, and uh, you can tell the audience a little bit about some of the other things that you're doing. That's, that's the main responsibilities, I guess, that's bringing in the pay every week, maybe. But you also seem to have a lot of other things which I didn't talk about. This is true. Well, we um, also, we publish a couple of podcasts. Um, so we have Healthish at Body and Soul and uh, something to talk about with Samantha Armitage at Stella Magazine. And we've got uh, our Body and Soul website. And I do um, uh, a little bit of television as a media and social commentator. So I'm on the Today Show one morning a week, up, up very nice and early as breakfast tv it's not civilized hours it's about a 4 30 a.m wake up once a week but can't complain because i know there's lots of shift workers in this country that do those hours every day uh and i do a little bit of um other tv now and again and also some radio so yeah i've got what would you say fingers in a lot of pies selena how do you do it <laughs> Uh, that is a very good question. Um, like everyone, I am a working parent as part of it. So I do have two um, young boys. So like every working parent and probably like every working human, uh, I certainly drop a lot of balls. Um, I definitely still working on my time management. It was very much, uh, I mean, I know we talked a little bit in one of your columns at Body and Soul about New Year's resolution or what else it's called, like a reset, or I do think there's a lot of power in whatever you want to call it, resolution, reset, just some sort of general reflection for the year ahead. It's something that I do take quite seriously. And at the beginning of 2022, I did set myself a few objectives and a few goals. And one of them was to set some more boundaries around my time. 
and have actually had a little bit of success with that. Um, I've learned to say no a little bit and I struggle with that. I think maybe a lot of women do struggle with that. I'm sure that uh, there's lots of women that don't and absolute uh, complete respect and admiration for those women. But I probably still have that good girl mentality, that overachieving type A that don't want to let anyone down. So I think that's been something for me to set some boundaries and hopefully that in a very roundabout way brings me to answering your question that I don't necessarily do it all. I try to do it all and I'm trying to do less of it all, but a little better. And I think um, many people listening um, to this will be thinking, how did you manage to get to these positions? I guess, how did you get into journalism? What was your interest? Where did it come from? Do you want to describe a little bit of your journey there? Because I think that's going to be so fascinating for everyone to understand. Mm. Yeah, it's a fascinating world, the media. I do come from a family where there was no one in my family that worked in the media. Um, I don't have, I didn't grow up knowing any friends or family that worked in it. It was very much a foreign world to me. I was very interested in it from early on. There was sort of, I grew up wanting three different careers. One was to be uh, a musical theatre performer. Uh, the second was to be um, a, a solicitor, so specifically a criminal prosecutor and work for the Department of Public Prosecutions. And the third was to be a journalist. <laughs> now, I know people in different parts of the country listening, you know, do work experience. Uh, when I was at high school, we did work experience in year 10. So I did one week actually at the DPP. Uh, which I found fascinating. And then my other week was at the local newspaper. Uh, so ultimately it was journalism that won out. Um, but it was a very roundabout way. And I did actually start studying law for a little while. And then uh, I found that probably it was journalism that was really passionately driving me. I actually wanted to be a political journalist. So I went to university, uh, the University of Sydney. I live in Sydney. And um, I did my honours degree in government and went and did an internship in Canberra in my final year and worked in federal parliament. So it's very much on that path to becoming uh, a member of the press gallery based out of Canberra. And then I came back to Sydney to finish my thesis and my honours degree. And I um, decided to get a job working in the outskirts of the media. So I, during university, had worked as the switchboard operator uh, at reception at David Jones, the department store. And so knowing how to work a switchboard, I found myself a job at a big magazine company um, fronting the desk while I was doing my thesis and got to know some people there and ended up uh, finding my way. I had to sit a test to be a chief or a sub-editor, which for people that don't know, the people that work in magazines, also in books, of course, where you're fitting the copy and you're fact-checking, that was my inroad into, into journalism and into magazines. I love magazines. I've read magazines my whole life. When I was in high school, I would go to the news agency every week and any money I had from my part-time job as a babysitter or working at the local bakery or the local fruit and veg shop, I would go and spend on magazines. So I've always loved magazines. So it was great working in a magazine why, company. Why do you love magazines so much? I think there's something really um, special. Uh, it's quite escapist. So, I mean, I think we all understand the power of books and I really should be reading a lot more books in my life. But when I was a child, I devoured them. And I think probably, unfortunately, I mean, this is probably a whole other podcast 
Selena, is, you know, that attention span, um, the de declining attention span, probably uh, crossing with the you know, short amount of hours in the day that are available to me, um, has unfortunately meant that books to me has become something I do on holidays. You know, I read three books during the recent Christmas summer holiday, which was amazing. And what so were maybe they, that just for us out of interest? Oh, I did a big cross section. So um, I read a couple of biographies, like including the Katie Couric book. So the um, American News Anchor, really fascinating book there, I think, especially about a woman in the media and, you know, so, certainly um, someone that's gone through a lot of uh, change in her career, you know, all the way through the 80s and the 90s, right through to now. Um, I read a couple of escapist ones. So a Leanne Moriarty book. I read another novel. Um, I was away and I actually gifted to someone I said this is a great beach read you read it it's too big for me to take back in my suitcase so you read it so I'm very much into passing books on um, <laughs> I'm keeping the Katie Couric book to lend to my colleague to my deputy editor who's American so I was it was great to read a few uh, books and I also read a couple of um, I suppose for want of a better word self-help books really with my work hat on a little bit for body and soul in particular so I did the whole cross-section everything through from great escapist beach reading you know mindless fiction right through to things that were a little bit more um, probably factually based and a bit more intellectually stimulating and had me thinking about work but I think maybe that is the magic of a magazine is that it is that element of escapism and I love picking it up and it's beautiful and I, I suppose when I was younger I didn't know what the word for it was because I didn't work there but now of course I understand it's really about curation it's about someone and a team putting putting something together right through from hooking you in with that amazing cover through to the features. You know, it's the light and the shade. It's the pieces that are going to get you thinking. It's the pieces that are very um, pragmatic and practical. And then there's just some, you know, beautiful escapism, fashion or whatever interests you. So I suppose that's probably what I really resonated with. Um, and so I stayed uh, working for a few different magazines and then realised that I probably was never going to go back to Canberra and never going to end up at the press gallery after all um, and ended up staying in Sydney and was, um, you know, very fortunate to, to end up um, at the company where I now work, um, which is News Corp, and went there as uh, to work at one of their newspapers back in 2005 um, as a television writer and then um, was promoted uh, over the subsequent um, four years until I went on maternity leave with the birth of my first son in 2009. And then I came back and probably reinvented myself a little bit as an opinion columnist. And um, after the birth of my second son actually became the opinion editor, uh, which I thought was a fantastic job and really enjoyed um, challenging the definition a little bit about what opinion pages at a newspaper can be in the 21st century and then was asked to launch Stella magazine in 2016. So it's wow, very part of history. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, certainly I've worked um, yeah. like most modern journalists in, in digital print and wow. uh, audio. What was the moment like when you offered the opportunity to found Stella? <laughs> Do you know what? I said no. Um, I, I was like, absolutely not. And um, my now boss was actually the person that offered it to me. And I was so adamant. I wasn't playing hard to get. I meant it. I didn't want the job. I knew it was going to be really 
um, very difficult. And there's, because it's a national magazine, you've got a lot of different people involved and it's different things to different people. And I just felt like that sort of Sunday magazine, in a way, as loved as it is, it's so um, it, it's so difficult because it's somewhere between a magazine where you want to be delivering this great, what I just talked about, piece of escapism and elevated content for a largely female audience, but it's being delivered by this newspaper, which is still, you know, Sunday newspapers are the most read medium in the Australian um, media landscape in 2022. And so they've got, you know, that's a lot more of a male-dominated, traditionally blokey domain. So I, I knew that the collision of those worlds brought with it enormous challenges from a stakeholder perspective. Um, once my now boss accepted my refusal and then came back a month later, and this time he managed to talk me into it, um, I allowed myself to be talked into it, I really should say, because obviously it, it had to be my decision and it was. But I think probably what scared me about it is what's been so great about it, because everything I've just said is true. It is actually uh, like no other um, title, really, in that it is the collision of those worlds. But yes. I think that's what's so amazing. So I think once I probably, again, this is all in hindsight, of course, I didn't see it that way. Um, but I think six years on, probably what I learned to do was what terrified me about it was that I embraced that fear and I think I probably lent into it and I actually think that at its core is probably why the magazine's been so successful because of the unique um, platform that it has which is why it seems so daunting. Yeah, your personal story matters to the audience because you know you're you sound so amazing and successful which you are and everyone's like, oh, that can't be me. I'd never be able to achieve that, especially young women or men uh, trying out because journalism has been so disrupted by the digital <laughs> transformation, mm. like many, many professions are currently being too. Um, so what has been some of your greatest challenges? Like you mentioned to me some of your great challenges, like this didn't come easy for you. I know that you already talked about working in the bakery, right? As you were buying your magazines. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so That's you know, right. why don't you yes. just why don't you talk through a couple of those mm -hmm. big things that happened in your life and how you yeah. how you got up the next morning and kept going when I'm sure everything mm. in your body sometimes didn't want you to do that. Mm. Oh, look, I, I think as you say, there's a lot of power because all of us look at each other and we assume that it's easier for other people and that they've got access to some sort of um, superpower that we don't have. And the truth is none of us do and we're all human and we're all frail and we're all probably second-guessing ourselves. Um, and I'm certainly um, case, you know, exhibit A for all of those things. I think my superpower would be resilience and where that came from was probably forged in fire. So when I was growing up, I'm the third of four children and uh, grew up uh, with two older brothers and a younger sister. My father, who's still alive, is a re retired sea captain. So he travelled a lot. Mm. And he was a sea captain with the Merchant Navy. So he was away a lot, uh, particularly at that time, you know, in the 1980s, it was a lot less regulated. I'm sure now people that are working in those jobs, they're sort of equal time at home and at sea, um, but he was away for months and months at a time. So my primary caregiver was very much my mother, um, who was a stay-at-home mom. 
mum and she uh, was actually diagnosed with breast cancer when I was eight and it was very aggressive and she she was um, put up a great fight and we had access to great medical care and um, she actually did manage to um, survive through that primary breast cancer uh, diagnosis and through um, secondaries that were diagnosed a few years later but she did die uh, when I was 17 and she was uh, 50 so very young and uh, by the time I was 17 my older brothers had moved out of home for quite a few years and they were um, living in different parts of the country and so my father uh, went back to sea after my mum's funeral because that was obviously his job and I actually became my sister's legal guardian on my 18th birthday and she and I were at home on our own and I was sort of navigating the HSC there so so she was 15. Wow amazing. So uh, we're extremely close, she and I, to this day. Um, I think I've mentioned that um, story as in obviously everyone's got their own challenges, but I think for me there was obviously there's a lot there to unpack for me as an individual. You know, there's the um, the loss of a parent. Um, you know, obviously that's a hugely formative experience for anyone that goes through that, to be honest, I think any time in life. I mean, I have... Mm-hmm girlfriends now that are you know losing their parents in their 40s and it's still you know a life-changing impact so you certainly don't have to be young for it uh, to be a uniquely um, you know upending experience but certainly I think when it does happen when you're that young um, it certainly brings a whole range of things with it including just an awareness of your mortality Um, I think having my mum diagnosed with breast cancer at such a young age I you know I would be there in hospital appointments and the, you know, radiotherapy and the seeing her in hospital, you know, when she would come out. Um, I remember visiting her um, in intensive care once when she'd had very, very, um, uh, you know, painstaking um, neurosurgery. And uh, I was Good Friday just before Easter. And I remember, you know, being on school holidays and seeing her in intensive care and just thinking, oh, this is awful. And you think about, you know, the impact um, that that has on on a young child, I think, is there is, like I say, a very heightened sense of mortality and an awareness of your own biological uh, ticking um, time bomb, as I sort of call it, you know, obviously then getting older and having to navigate the, I suppose, the genetic um, ramifications of that and you know, what What does that mean for me and, and what checks and balances? But what, I think what I would say, Selena, for, like I say, everyone's got their own unique challenges, but I do remember sort of getting to about 18 and thinking, I know I can get through anything because I was able to get through that and with my sister and um, there was, I didn't know it was called resilience. Now I know it's resilience. And everything that's happened in my life since awful things, so-so things, things that aren't on the same playing field, but use up a lot of my time, which is just dealing with work disasters day in and day out. Um, There is just a resilience there. And I do think for anyone that's going through a difficult time, that's, you know, it is a cliche, but that is the silver lining of it. Even if you don't know it at the time, if you can survive it, 
um, there will be part of you knowing that you can get through that. And I mean, there are a whole range of cliches to that and they do sound terribly hollow. Um, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger <laughs> and all of that. You know, the things that belong on bumper stickers, but there's a real truth at the core of that. And I think that's a big part of um, my life story is learning that resilience and, and um, you know, I'm so sorry for my mum and I'm so sad for all of us that she'll never know any of her grandchildren, um, you know, never meet my husband or really anyone that I've met from the age of 17. So there's a lot of sadness, of course, and I'm just sad for her that she didn't get to live and live her potential. Um, but like I say, uh, it's certainly, you know, inadvertently or not, she also gifted me to be as strong as I think she hoped I would be. And I yeah. like to think that aftermath of an awful loss and you're grieving, you're probably not immediately receptive to it, but just hearing it and seeing it and something that will resonate, something will click and you go away and oh, no someone else got through this or what did they do? And obviously what they did might not work for you, but just the power in sharing those stories. I'm so grateful for the people that continue to find the courage to open up and share their stories whether it's on a podcast like yours whether it's in a magazine there is a lot of power in that and I think that's been a real um privilege like I say for what I've done in the media and I've certainly you know I've worked on campaigns before the magazines I worked on one of the vaccination campaigns for childhood vaccination and you know I still remember the the mum who's um, you know, newborn baby died of whooping cough and, um, you know, interviewing her and her agreeing to, to send me a photo of her holding, you know, her little baby in her arms after her baby had died because she knew the power in telling other people this can happen. This is real. Let's not get complacent. And it was so hard for her to open up and share her story, but I'm so grateful she did. And as I said to her, you have saved lives by doing this. So there is that capacity in, in storytelling. And ultimately that is actually what media is. You know, we go, oh, the media or the media, this or the media, that, but the truth is at its best, it has a lot of bad days, but at its best, the media is Basically what you're doing with guests on your podcast is, is talking to people, sharing their stories. We're really lucky today because uh, Kurt Fernley has given us his time to be able to share with us some messages um, where we try and change the conversation to brain health and fitness. So thank you, Kurt, for your time today and welcome. Thank you. So would you like to tell everyone a little bit about yourself and a bit of your background for people at aren't aware of your, you know, what you're up to and what you do. I'm Kurt Fernley. I, um, oh, I raced wheelchairs for a big chunk of my life. Now I'm figuring out a new path. And I, uh, I host um, ABC, ABC TV's One Plus One. Um, I host a couple of podcasts. One that is Tiny Island that I love that is, uh, traveling around and talking to as many people as I can about what it is to be an Australian. Um, I also host You Little Ripper, which is a Paralympics podcast brought to you uh, um, during Paralympic Games, which is actually just starting up in a few days' time for the Winter Paralympics in Beijing. I I really just love telling stories, to tell the truth. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know I... I I didn't know I would find something as much... I loved as much as... Um, as racing wheelchairs, but 
once I once I finished that part of my life, I I just started just having had people share my story for for a good couple of decades and being the beneficiary of that, creating a space where people feel comfortable to share their stories and open it up about about what they're going through is just something that I that I fell in love with. So what do you think it is? Um, I, I mean, I can understand how, how much benefit you get from, you know, winning races and the exercise that comes from all of that and the achievement and the goal setting. Can you, can you speak to the heart of why you think sharing these stories is so helpful for you, but probably also for the people that you're helping? Look, I think that sometimes we get so caught up in day-to-day that we rarely get the opportunity to sit down and, and talk to somebody for you know, for 45 minutes, for an hour, for an hour and a half, you know, like often days go by and you might run into the same person and speak to them for 10 minute chunks at a time. But, you know, sitting down and truly talking about what someone's belief system is, or um, like I had friends that I've brought onto the podcast and I've learned new things about them that, you know, I remember talking to a mate who I've ran into a number of times over over the last 10 years and then I I sit down and I speak about how his parents were heroin addicts and, and I didn't know that because I hadn't got past the score of the cricket or I hadn't got past the what you've been doing lately you know conversation and uh, so so I think that being able to give that to lots of people who who may not have the opportunity to sit down and have a yarn with Steve Orr or or Craig Johnson or Craig Foster or um, you know like uh, it's 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 something that I like and I think I, I I raced for Australia for a lot of years it was a part of who I was but rarely do you have the conversation about what that means what is it that the green and gold is beyond the superficial beyond the you know uh, we we look after your mates and you know punch above our weight or something so it was also an extension of okay well you've you've raced for this country for so long who is this country and creating a space where you can talk about that I, I truly believe that we all need to talk about who we are as a country or else it can get co-opted by those that are going to bend it to their own their own benefit and you know some people can get in there and tell us what it is to be an Australian but that's I think that's that's dangerous so it's about giving people varied conversation about who we are people varied conversation about who we are that's a that's a wonderful goal so as a fellow Australian what has been some of your greatest lessons that you've learned about who you think you're, what you're learning that who we are as Australians is in 2022? I'm really curious to, to hear your side of what you've been learning from other people in our country. You know what? One of the biggest things that has kind of shone through is that we do seem to have this hope that we are a country that wants to be better, uh, that there is this. Um, desire that we both own and understand and speak truthfully about the 60,000 years of, of of heritage of this country, not just the 200 of colonization. There is this, you know, this, the, this, this hope that we will continue to change 
to be better each year and each 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 day that we go forward. Uh, there's a continual conversation about the relationship with Indigenous peoples, um, and there is the idea that that the, the the idea that when things do fall apart, we are a country that does do what we can to look after people. Individuals' thoughts about who we are, where we're headed, and their levels of comfort around that. Yes, well, uh, I think that's a really worthy goal. And and as an Australian-American myself, because I lived in the Bay Area for a while, um, I think that thought process, like if you were to ask me that question, I don't think I'd have an immediate answer either. Like, yeah, but as an Australian American, you could draw. I would draw comparisons about your experience in America and about, uh, you, you know, whether or not there is a. Do you notice the difference between you know the egalitarian kind of um, basis of the cultures? You know, is there a difference? So you, you'd be surprised about how even your initial thing is. You know what? I don't know. When you do kind of expand it further, you do find little bits and pieces around there, it's especially uh, especially at the moment. I feel yes, every other country in the world, there's so much going on. There is. Um, we're coming you to you at, uh, to. we're talking together at a really, int, you know, pivotal moment in our history together, I think. Um, and this quest, this is why I think this question is so important right now. And I think that's being addressed acutely in the situation that the Ukrainian versus the Russians are finding themselves. And I have a friend actually from the Bay Area who turns out to be Ukrainian. And she said, when I'm there, people say to me, are you Russian? You're Ukrainian, doesn't that mean you're Russian? And she posted on Facebook today, I don't think you'll ever ask me that question again, for example. Yeah, uh, what, a, what an intense moment where the Ukrainian people have, have been asking what does it mean to be Ukrainian? Like at the end of the, like they are, they are having to ask themselves that question every minute of every day now, uh, because and if there is no response to that, then there, there, then, then there's no reason to fight, you know. But if there is a response to that, then that's the that's the thing that 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 they kind of resist for to keep alive, and it's um, having the Ukraine is actually one of the most successful Paralympic nations like they're in the top five Paralympic nations in every single games um they have these um, and I'm not sure why but they they have this mixture of talent identification but a cultural acceptance of Paralympic movement that that has allowed them to cement their place in there and so because it's an important such an important and pivotal nation in the Paralympic movement it is it is a just a weird time because you know, like there are, you know, the, the your friends are waking up each day and, and wondering, you know, if or what tomorrow will, will will be like for them. And yeah, it's it's what a, a, again the twenty twenties. Can there can there be more? <laughs> can there be more chaos? Can there I be know. more? And, and the answer is there can be. Yes, <laughs> but we've got to just try and just kind of get. Get and by this... the best we can switch off, you know. Um, but the who we are as an individual, I think, is a really important conversation because that's one of the what's how I feel one of the one of the stepping stones of of trying to create that that drive within you, you know. Like you can, there's lots of ways to become 
you know, to, to manipulate your resilience, you know, by, by, by setting small incremental goals and slowly chasing them. But there's also a way of like fundamentally setting up your baseline of having that conversation. I am, you know, whatever follows. I, 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 I'm, it may be I am an extremely empathetic, understanding person who gives out warmth and love to each and every person around you. And that may be your baseline. Mine is somewhere along the lines is I'm extremely strong. I'm extremely resilient. And no matter where I head, I will never give up, you know, like because I've had that conversation, that's where my baseline is. Right. So I, I think that that conversation about that individual conversation about who you are is really important to have as well. Yes. Um, and can you think about where some turning points came for you that allowed you to drive that conversation so strongly in your head? Do you think it came from your parents or did you think you were like, this is where people think they're either born with something or they're not um, grandparents or, or is there, or is it some people say it's just came with practice and experience through your life? I think that it came through the input of lots of people. I think I'd be doing a disservice to them uh, for not um, giving them the, the 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 kudos, the recognition. Um, but you know, there, there, there are things that you are born with, and there are benefit. Not there are there are um, experiences as a child. I think that helped. You know, always had a a warm, safe, loving environment, a caring space for me to feel like I was safe. Um, and then on top of that, I was able to uh, be given the knowledge that I have to be out in community. I, you know, I need to be figuring out who I am in the uncomfortable parts of the paddocks where I grew up, you know. So they, my family made sure that I understood that life was always about being amongst it. It was always about getting your hands dirty and, you know, being a part of the community. And, and the community, um, because I had a physical disability, I think they invested a lot in me and made sure that I always understood that although it is a bit of a challenge, it is a bit hard, you are going to be crawling while people are walking next to you. You know, there are cuts and bruises and you're a bit slower, but they also they give me the, the knowledge and the environment that I was always accepted as I was and that I was always able to look up and ask for help whenever needed. There was no feeling that if I would ask for help, that I was a burden, that I was, you know, something that was that was negative that was always on the it was always on the spectrum of strength you know like it was being open and open with your perceived vulnerability around people that are willing to be a part of that experience and make it easier for you but that put it on the that was that was the strength side of the conversation it was never seen or or shaped as something that was negative and I feel with this mixture of both gratitude and guilt as well but gratitude because although people see my story in a certain way they see it as this you know tough kind of thing my my story in reality has just been extraordinary support extraordinary advocacy um and levels of support that I know is unusual 
Um, and I know there are many people out there with, you know, experiences with disability, experiences with whatever uh, variation on life that's in front of them that don't get that. But the, the, the guilt, um, the, the gratitude is there that I know that I got it. The guilt is there because I know so many other people in the world that just just would benefit from that upbringing and that yeah. levels of support around them. But Example. Uh, the benefit for me for the Paralympic movement was like getting cheat codes to um, to live. So you get to hang around a community and and rather than being isolated with disability, feeling like you're in a silo where, you, where you're, you're just trying to create the wheel again and again and again, you live in a community that has learnt the ins and outs of disability over the last 70 years and you get to get all the shortcuts. Um, so you, you see, you know, you might be new to the sport and have um, lost your leg and then you see a guy with one leg jump six feet high. Or uh, I remember seeing a guy who lost both of his arms sit down next to me and eat, um, eat a feed with a knife and fork in between his toes, you know. And so it, it truly just gives you an understanding of who we are and who we can be, this idea that there is such a variation of experience of um people with disabilities who just nail it like they just just nail it and, and you find somebody who may have the exact same disability as you and you get to just talk about the true experience about who you are and about what you do and about what's helped and what's gotten away and, and get the cheat codes so that if and when that hits you you've you don't feel like you're stuck in that silo. You've you've got that name, that face, that experience, that 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 real world kind of tangible moment where you go no, no. or or when somebody stands in your way and says that can't happen, you go that's happened. Get the hell out of my way. Really important and has always been, I believe, important for the Paralympic movement to have real people helping real people and I got given the cheat codes when I was 13 maybe a bit younger the first time I met his, his name was Michael Callahan guy in a wheelchair we've lost him unfortunately uh -huh. um he saw me and uncle and I knew them all as uncle Errol uncle um uncle Kevin he was our first Paralympian he's an indigenous man and and um we all knew them all as uncle's aunties um mm -hmm. So I turned up there with brakes and handlebars and they looked at me and said, get rid of your brakes, get rid of your handlebars. You choose where you go and how you go there. So I went home with a hacksaw and I hacked the handlebars off my chair because no one was going to push me. And I hacked the brakes off my chair because they said, you don't need brakes. You've got hands. You control when and where your chair stops. So you have this complete control over your wheelchairs. And it was just like mind blowing. It was all of a sudden, it was, it was like, okay, like I am in control of every part of where and when I go. Um, and I remember doing that to a kid in two kids, Peter and John in Nairobi, in a, in a township there, a slum there. 
And there were these little kids pushing them throughout the school. And I remember taking them aside. I was staying there for a week. And I just said, you choose where and when you go. You don't let anyone push them. And these little kids are just all of a sudden, they refused to let somebody push them. And you could see this strength in them when they were pushing up and down. And then they started racing around the school. But this is, it's this real, that's the code. They got the code. They saw it. They had a real world experience. And they went, wait, I am independent and I am strong. And that's who I am and where I go where I go and it was like it was it was immediate and unfortunately I haven't been able to see him for the last couple of years because of this pandemic but it's at some point I look forward to seeing the individual men that they grow into and that's just such a powerful statement you made you know how we talked earlier about mentoring and parenting and all of these other things and what you're describing is just how much a difference you can make through your own behavior and, and like the person that mentored you at 13 was so powerful in your mind and then you're passing that on. So that person has passed something to you that you've already passed around the world, way away from Australia, for example, and, and these things are so impactful, aren't they? Well, if, if they are done right, you know, like I truly believe they have to just be real. You, they have to be in the trenches with somebody where they see, they smell, they, they are a part of it, like that. It is, it is their real tangible experience. I can't believe that it is a, it's a meme or a picture or anything. You cut that. I don't think that, I don't think that is, you know, gonna, gonna make, you know, pass the pub test or the sniff test, or whatever that is. <laughs> um, if you do it right, as in you are, sitting in the dirt experiencing what they're experiencing and then show them and bring them and be a part of their world then yes you truly can professor debbie husky levanthal and she's a professor of management at macquarie university thank you so much such a pleasure being here with you We'd love to, why don't you share with the audience straight away your story? So I grew up actually in Tel Aviv or a small town outside Tel Aviv. We were a family of, you know, usual mom, dad, and three kids. But um, during my, so during my mom's pregnancy with me, they've discovered that my brother has cancer. He was only six and um, it was a pretty terrible cancer And so my early childhood was all about him being sick. And then very sadly, when I was three and he was 10, he passed on. And uh, that changed my family. For She found it when she stumbled upon the Kabbalah Center in Tel Aviv. And we're talking about the 1970s. So very, very early days of the Kabbalah Center. Uh, Rabbi Berg and his wife, Karen, just established a small center in Tel Aviv. And we were one of the first families to actually join. And, and because of that, we became part of the very inner circle, very close circle to the Bergs. The Bergs had two kids, Yehuda and, and Michael, or Michael uh, with whom I love to play. And, uh, and so she joined the Kabbalah Center and my, our lives completely changed. Everything was about the center. We um, saw it growing bigger and bigger every year, more people. But when I was 16, um, I've realized how huge and powerful this has become. 
the berg started to accumulate a visible amount of wells. They've moved from very humble houses to mansions. And I became very devoted at that age. And I, all I wanted to do is do what the Bergs told me and spread the light. I was just so immersed in all of that. And so I've started doing what the Karen uh, coined as plowing. So you had to go door to door with the with the Berg's books and, and the book of the Zohar, which is the main book of Kabbalah. And we just used to knock on people's doors and try to, to sell the books. And I did that from the age of 16 after school or during school holidays. Somewhere around there, a few months after I fully joined, I was sent to Paris to uh, work at the Kabbalah Center there. And that was an eye-opening experience because not only we were 14 people in a small apartment in Paris, we slept three girls in one small bedroom. So one of them had to sleep underneath the bed. Um, and, <laughs> and I saw the misery of the women there who got married. And I was just about to be matched for marriage by Karen and so after a month or two in Paris where I couldn't cope, I couldn't sell enough books, my back was broken and very painful. She sent me back and kind of, you know, dismissed me from what I was doing. And I thought, I've seen too much. I know too much. I've known of unethical behavior for too long, abuse, sexual abuse, taking people's money in their most vulnerable situations. And I thought, I don't want to do that anymore. And I left the center and I've decided to look into everything I believed in till that day, because if something I believed so strongly um, about turn out to be, for me at least, false, then what else do I believe in? Yeah. And so that was my meaningfulness search, which led me to where I am today happens it's almost like a physical rejection isn't it where you're on your own when you left at 18 um, you lose all of the sense of social connection too because that's part of the thing to keep you in the cult is to make you feel awful if you leave right exactly right and that's also why they got people to get married as fast as possible because then you have to also leave your family and that's almost impossible so once you get married and you have a child it's almost impossible for you to leave and so yes I left with no social connections no social circles and at the time in my life where I needed friends the most I had none and it's it's a very very difficult experience to leave a religion to leave a cult to leave something that was your whole life, that gave you all the instructions, the manual you need for life, and you are all by yourself. I was a child, I was only 18 and a half, and I had no idea what to believe in anymore, what to do in the, you know, growing up the way I did, I knew what to think, pray, and do every minute of the day. And all of a sudden I was left with nothing it was very, very difficult emotionally to a point where I didn't want to leave anymore. I, uh, I did not remember that, but my sister just very recently reminded me that the day I came back from Paris, I actually tried to commit suicide. I, because if cult is based on the idea that we 
have access to the truth and others don't, then that means if you leave us, you are going to lose that access to the truth, to meaningfulness, to the whole meaning of life. You are going in and it's not, you know, coincidence that many calls use different terms to call people who are outsiders of the organization in negative terms. So in the Kabbalah Center, they were called, um, in, in Hebrew, it's called klipot or empty shells. So they are empty shells, like you have, you know, you're just an empty shell. What are you? You're really, I reflected for six months about what do I believe in? What do I want? And it's just, you could see how... <laughs> I felt like I was going through a brain transplant because <laughs> my way of thinking completely transformed once I was out of the influence of the Kabbalah Center and I was able to freely think for myself, which was scary as hell, but it was also so liberating. Then I thought I need to do something with my life. And I decided to go to uni and study philosophy. And it was just such a liberating experience, the ability to study whatever I want, to ask questions, because asking questions was not positively looked upon in my high, ultra-Orthodox high school or, uh, or in, in the Kabbalah Center. I remember when I was 15, I think I came to the principal in my school and I said, you know, you're telling us that Judaism is the only right religion in, in the world, but how do I know that if everyone who told me that is Jewish and how do I get a sense of objectivity? And I remember him looking at me like, where does this girl come from? I said, just pray. That's what he told me. Just pray so you don't have these doubts and these sinful thoughts. So any, <laughs> any individual thinking was just disencouraged to a point where you knew you are sinful if you, are, if you dare to think. And that's how they turn your critical thinking off. So in a way, higher education and going to uni completely changed my life and saved me. I have no other words, but, you know, higher education saved me. And another thing that completely changed my life was when I did go to uni, I started, I, of course, I had no money, right? My, my parents <laughs> did not support me. And I, I often didn't have enough money to eat. I became very, very skinny. I was only 48 kilograms because I didn't have money to buy food. So I took on every, you know, so many different jobs. I was cleaning people's houses, scrubbing toilets, doing whatever I can to survive life. Despite growing up in what was supposed to be a light spreading experience, <laughs> I finally felt like what it really means to make a difference in someone else's lives. And it's such a good feeling when you really feel like you are helping, not for someone else, not to make money, not to sell a book, but just to help. And it was such an amazing experience that we really are. We are biologically hardwired to have this connectedness. I mean, look, even research shows us that hugging someone for 20 seconds can release so many good hormones and be good for your health because you know, you just hug someone, your heart connects physically to theirs. 
And it's such an amazing feeling to be able to create even the smallest impact on a child's lives. Or it could be even a random stranger in the, in, you know, on the street that you've smiled towards or did an act yes. of kindness and how wonderful it makes both of you, both of you feel. I love that in Australia and I don't see it in yes. many other places around yes, the world. Yes, I know. People just walk around the street and they just look at each other yes. and they say hello and good morning and, and ask how you are. Um, I could just walk around the street and have conversation with complete strangers. And it's just so wonderful to feel that human connectedness. We saw that in COVID, how much we miss that and yearn for it because we really are hardwired to do it. And we were misled for so long to be told that we'll find happiness through consumption, through success, money, wealth. And we really don't find happiness we are the most miserable, the most drugged generation to have ever lived because yes, so. of years of misleading us of what happiness really is. So nay, your name is such an important part of your identity. And when they strip you from your old identity to build a new identity, the cult member, one of the things that they can do is change your name, but also disconnect you from your old social circles. Uh, make sure that you do not have connection with the outside world. Um, you started to have your own language. So outsiders would not be able to understand, like I told you, with empty shells. That was such a common word that we used back then. The light, energy, empty shells, the power of resistance. Oh, there were so many terms that we use in our day-to-day language that outsiders would not be able to understand it's part of what builds you so even for madonna even though she's not jewish they've changed her name to esther which is a jewish biblical name um and it's uh another way for them to show she belongs to us that's that's what the call does oftentimes so they're basically preying on this really need for us to belong is what you're talking about they really get that people I, want I to be part of a tribe joins a cult i mean if you grow up in it that's not something else but if you join a cult i don't think you join a cult without an immense pain and vulnerability it's what so, so can you say that again so you're saying that people want people that are traumatized are the main new recruits yes so trauma pain um sense of um alienation, um, loneliness, all the pains that a lot of us carry around. And we try to numb that pain by using drugs or whatever we do to try and numb the pain, overeating, any kind of addiction. There are healthy ways of dealing with the pain, but there are unhealthy ways. And joining a cult <laughs> is not a healthy way, but that's exactly why people do that. So firstly, you're right. I mean, there are different kinds of cults. They're not all about religion. Um, they could be even political cults. They could be um, consumers cults. There are all these different cults where the same kind of um, characteristics apply to all. So usually there is a very charismatic leader who everyone thinks is or she. It's usually a he. <laughs> So that's the first thing. Then there is the um, way of keeping you from the outside world. And then there is also some, always some level of abuse because it's, it's sort of a hierarchy of power, a cult of any kind. And to keep that power in 
place, you need to teach people that they are powerless and helpless. And that learned powerlessness and helplessness is what keeps the cult of any kind going. And that exact kind of abuse then can translate to from emotional abuse, verbal abuse. I've seen Rabbi Berg calling people the Satan, um, calling them the other side, which in Kabbalah means like anything that's bad about this world is in the other side. Um, and, and just because they did not perform well enough, did not sell enough books or God forbid, um, showed something that he thought was an ego. We were not allowed to have anything to thrive, including sexual abuse. So I was sexually abused by two men in the Kabbalah Center. I can't say that I've called out to help and did not receive it because, as you said, I was told by this man that it was going to be a secret and I was not allowed to tell anyone. So I didn't. Uh, it happened to me when I was seven. And I, again, did not remember that at all until I was 30 with an immense, scary flashback, all of a sudden it all came back to me. And I thought, wow, I did not think about that for so many years, 23 years, but um, it was done because it was okay to abuse people in all different kinds of ways. The old I'm so glad for your new book called Meaningfulness, where you describe all the things that you did, which is incredibly amazing and resilient to build your life where it is now and now to be able to speak about it to to help other people, right? You could you don't need to do that. You don't need to talk about this, do you? You could just go to your grave and not tell anyone about it. So I do believe that there's a mirror effect where your information mm. will help, even if it's one person, like you've already helped change the cycle for your family haven't you mm. and your children won't have to go through the same thing so I do believe that there's a way forward through sharing knowledge and even if it's not immediate yeah, it does make absolutely. it harder to maintain these kind of structures as as we help people see where it all it starts fr through trauma doesn't it and mm. disconnection and people suffering and poverty and uh, all sorts of things that are happening in people's yeah. lives where they don't feel like that they have agency you know, yeah, so. absolutely. I was so voiceless. Um, but to for me to be able to now write books and articles and have podcasts like this one, and a TED talk and everything makes me so there is no such word you have voiceless, you don't have voiceful, but yeah. <laughs> I feel voiceful, you know, I feel yes. like I have agency, I have voice, I have the ability to do it. And if I'm not going to use my voice for good, what a waste of voice it is. And so when I decided to write my book, I've read a few autobiographies and I thought, wow, you know, I also have a really important story to share. But and today we're joined by Jeremy Indica. We're very lucky to have him all the way from England today. And he is a male survivor of child sexual abuse and he is sharing his story in very creative ways. He's breaking the silence. He uses film and animation illustration, and it's an attempt to engage the audience in any way he can on this really tough subject, and that's why he's on the podcast today too. It's to bring more awareness. It's not to just to bring trauma or trauma responses. It's to help break the silence and the stigma, like what we try and do on the podcast is to break the stigma around mental health, and he wants to change that, and he's done it in such imaginative and beautiful ways, and he's going to share with us that today so we're really looking forward to having you so thank you Jeremy for joining us today yeah thank you for having me tell the audience a little bit about how you how who you are and what you're doing right now 
Yeah, fantastic. So my name is Jeremy Indicat, and I am trying my best to make this subject of child abuse more accessible and to create some interest around it, to try to get people's eyes on it, as opposed to people turning their eyes away from it, because I believe that's one of the, I mean, one of the big problems that we're facing at the moment. And to do that, I am trying my best to be creative. I feel like just reporting it in a reporting style or uh, uh, the usual style that you see it where it's big and scary, which of course it is, um, is going to be okay, but it's not going to capture the attention of somebody who doesn't usually read or watch anything on that topic. So I'm trying to turn it on its head and my current idea is to use things like you know film and animation and photography to try to do that um and i feel like i'm having some success at the moment again we we need to take the violence out of the conversation i mean i mean it's i i i, I feel like the majority of cases are, are not violent you know so the child is never going to actually say anything because they're not being hurt physically in any way you know there's no pain in there either so these are these are the complications i'm trying to get out into the open um as time goes on and more and more people are speaking out um we can see how this method of uh grooming or this um variation of child abuse is 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 so so common and we can actually start seeing that on the something to say page that i run so I run another platform called Something to Say, and um, I'm sharing other people's stories on there, stories of strength and courage, um, and people are explaining what happened to them. And mostly as we read them and the more entries start coming in, it's more of adults are now telling their story, explaining that they were tricked as a child. They were tricked into this. They were brainwashed into this. They actually thought this was something that they needed or wanted they actually thought that actually yeah i'm playing a part in this this is quite this is all i just want people to be encouraged that if this is something they want to do if they want to say something about what happened to them what happened to them when they were a child then it's okay to do that yeah well the the thing is that this so the research of andrew filetti from california started this process in 1986 and they were doing a weight loss study and people that started to fall out of their study um there was a was weight loss with really morbidly obese people in in their in kaiser permanente which is a hospital they were falling out of the study and they went and interviewed them and said why are you leaving the study being so successful losing all this weight and then they said well now you're making me as i lose the weight now i have nothing to hide myself from oh, I, was, wow. I, I from their trauma so this is where the early life adverse childhood experiences ACEs studies started from, and they reframed the whole study. So now we have really good evidence that 79% of heroin-using women have been sexually abused, for example. Oh, my goodness. So we've got all the data now, and it's replicated around the world. These studies have been done in the UK as well, not just in the US. Okay, so that statistic is absolutely mind-blowing for me and um, awful because they show the public that an adverse childhood experience of this nature is something that sticks around with the adult. 
and, uh, for the rest of their life and often is driving the course of their life and then we start to see with statistics like this the magnitude of the problem it's not just the isolated event that when you turn into an adult once you've realized what happened that you can just let it go and let it pass you by you know the amount of times I have been asked can you not just let it go you should let it go it will make you feel better that is a that is a, a comment that will always make me feel instantly angry but I'm angry not at the person I'm angry at our situation because that is just a lack of understanding yes so so when you talk about um see so the way I look at it for you the way that you got to overcome yours was in the beginning was to pour it all into engineering Right. So that was your way. Like you were lucky that you got to pour it into engineering rather than into heroin. So yes. a lot of people in prison and we we actually had a big story um, just this week, actually, about a person that was in and out of prison bank, robbing banks in Australia and they were abused as a child and they were abused in prison, too. And um, okay. so this is a common story story uh, in it's something that does need to change because we always look at people that are addicted as needing to get off the drugs. It's the same thing, but actually what we now know is addiction is a medication for trauma. Yes. As well. And so as we shift and change these conversations, we might be able to change that outcome as well. Okay. So this is where I need to start. This is where I want to see my work start going because um, I, I, I want it to start investigating things like this because then we can get people to be like, oh, wow, I never thought about it like that before. And then they may take it a little bit more seriously. And then things like people who call the shots in the polit you know, in parliament and, and the politicians, maybe one day we can get them to take this seriously as well. Well, I can tell you now this data has been around for 25 years. Oh, wow. And, um, and I think the politicians and the public health professionals, many of them have access to all of this data. And okay. I mean, even Oxford has now taken up the um, Alberta Family Wellness Initiative, which is to teach people about how adverse childhood experiences affects brain development. Wow. And so that's, a, I can point you to the Oxford um, university study there so I mean the information is around and it's it's just about like you said why are we not paying attention to this and why because that fundamental shift in protecting children from abuse can have a big impact on reducing our mental health problems in society yeah yeah to see that to, to show people that knock-on effect I think is really interesting and something that I want to get into uh, for sure so can I ask you, um, Jeremy, when you're out in these bars and cocktails talking about your story and then, so what did you tell them you think are the th three things that you can do about it? So my uh, three main preventative measures are to, to open conversations with young people um, in an age-appropriate way, continuous education not just a once a year one hour lesson it's a continuous education age appropriate education um and that is one of my main things that I'm always, always going on about. Another preventative measure is for us to just talk about um, 
sex in a more open way it hasn't got to be a secret um it's something that we all do it's something that we all are driven towards and we enjoy and we should enjoy it it doesn't need to be a secret i don't know why in the history of the human race where when it became such a stigmatized topic and such a hush hush thing that you just don't talk about but it has and we I feel, I feel personally like we're still in that era and um it would be nice to break that I feel like the way we handle sex as a society is a massive problem. And that brings me on to the third thing, which is for prevention. We need to start looking at the people that are committing these crimes. Why are they committing these crimes? What's driving them to commit these crimes? Um, and also, we need to understand that there's not just one type of person that's committing this crime. There's a, a wide variety of people who are doing this there are some people also in that spectrum who feel the temptation to commit this crime but have not yet committed this crime what are we going to do with that group of people because to turn the light out on them push them in a corner and hope and pray that they don't commit the crime is not any type of prevention we need to um accept that there are people countless people walking around with this tendency in their head and we need to address them as well so in your experience in these chat rooms and talking to other people is it like in your experience in these spaces i don't know how much you know about this is it is it a tendency that people commit these kind of crimes because they had it done to them at some point or somewhere in their family well, they do say that, um, I heard a statistic recently, one in three people who commit sexual crimes of a sexual nature have had crimes of a sexual nature committed to them at some point in their life. And that's not a nice statistic for us to get our head around because for anybody that has uh, been, is, is a victim of a crime of a sexual nature as a child, it kind of makes them feel like, well, does that mean people are thinking that I'm going to turn into this person, right? Or is that going to scare some people and, and make them feel like that's the inevitable end of, you know, that's an inevitable thing to happen to their life. They're going to turn into somebody like this. Right. That's why yeah. that statistic mm -hmm. of the abused uh, go on to abuse is not, is not something I like. Um, okay, it's something we need to talk about, but it's something we need to talk about very carefully. Absolutely. What we need to, yeah, what that, we need to find out. That's if the silence about. stays. The, if the silence stays, right? That's Yes. That, yeah, exactly. By breaking the silence, you're changing people's understanding. But with this topic, the sexual abuse of children, we want zero, right? We want zero. And to have that, we all, we all need to team together and do our bit, whether that's um, <clears throat> people in your field doing your excellent work that I'm very interested in from a scientific point of view, whether it's survivors speaking out, whether it's making, um, uh, making uh, TV programs or films, just we need to hit it from every angle. Yes, and programs and policy and educate. I, I really <laughs> yeah. think education is the key to many things because we yes. I mean, think if you go back 8,000 years we used to do all sorts of things that weren't great you know we used to have guillotines yeah. and you know it goes on and on and yeah, knowledge becomes facts and makes the change but without breaking the silence first and being courage you know having the courage to do this nothing will change so we're really grateful Jeremy that you've had the courage and I mean to give up on your passion for Formula One and I can see now you're applying exactly the same <laughs> passion 
here um, and we're really lucky. My name is Alice Betts and she is the PR manager for Acne Studios. And Acne Studios is a really famous brand. So welcome, Alice. Thank you for joining us on the Thriving Minds podcast. Hi, thanks, for Selena, for having me on the podcast. People are like, that's an amazing job. How do I get a job like that? Well, I guess there's a lot of steps to this journey. It definitely wasn't uh, uh, something that went straight from A to, to B. It required many years and a lot of work that you probably wouldn't expect thinking about this kind of role or the, the job. Um, so it was definitely a challenge, but a lot of determination and a lot of believing in yourself and not being afraid, fearlessness. And that you do your job in Swedish. So you're working out of Stockholm in Sweden and we failed to mention that. Yes, yeah, so I am a native English speaker, but I actually learned Swedish when I, learned to, when I moved to Sweden. But I lived in Norway for five years before, prior to this. And so first of all, I learned Norwegian. And then when I moved to, to Sweden, I decided that I wanted to learn Swedish as well since the languages were so similar. And I wanted to fully understand the language of the place I was living in. And I think that speaking the language of where you live is also a really important thing and can really help with so many things about making life and your work easier as well. So you're going to be heading to Paris for Fashion Week. Um, tell the audience a little bit about what that involves. So every season, or that's approximately twice a year, we have a show in Paris, which is where we debut the next season's collection. And mainly it's a lot of preparations beforehand. So it's months and hours of work building up to the day of the show that requires a lot of back and forth with um, casting and, and dressing people for the show and making sure people come to the show, making sure they find their right seat. And then on the actual day of the show, it's, it's much a lot of mingling and greeting of the people who you've invited and, and making sure that they uh, have a good experience and then also asking them about how they experienced it afterwards and making sure that they are interested enough to to write something about it or take photos of it or or post something on social media so that they share the experiences i think that uh allowing yourself first of all allowing yourself to to take a risk which is very difficult thing to do, but not being afraid to take a huge risk. When I when I left Brisbane and I first moved to Scandinavia, I had no idea what I was going to do there. I had no plan. I didn't have a job. I I really was stepping out into the complete unknown. But I think that because from doing that back then and kind of not being afraid and and taking that risk, it opened my mind to 
to continue to do that as well over and over again in multiple situations, which led me to be lucky enough to be in a situation that opened a lot of doors for me. Um, I think that also don't let like one minus setback knock you down because even though a lot of things might not go right for you in the beginning and I mean I never thought I would end up working in fashion I never thought it would be a possibility for me since it's not something I ever studied or had any experience with but I think that if you put yourself out there and you and if you really feel passionately about something and really show it in everything you do then you know it's gonna get you a lot further than someone who potentially has experience as well. We have an adventurer with us, Eleanor Carey. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Selena, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So stepping into the unknown is something that uh, Eleanor Carey has been doing over and over again. It is something that both excites and frightens her every single time. From cycling solo across Europe in search for career change to founding multiple businesses to battling hurricanes, extreme seasickness and sleep deprivation, she has learned how to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Spending 62 days at sea in a 7.5 metre boat rowing day and night is just one part of Eleanor's experience that has built her ability to adapt in such a wide variety of conditions and circumstances and continue stepping forward in the face of fear and uncertainty. Welcome, Eleanor. How exciting to have you here. <laughs> yeah, like I said, exciting to be here. <laughs> So I'm, I'm really curious to know, uh, what made you do some of these adventures? Oh, there's a lot of different reasons, but the very first one was cycling across Europe. And the whole, uh, the motivation behind that was I was living overseas in the UK. I was a physiotherapist, which was great in a sense, but it just didn't really feel like the right fit for me after probably, you know, five or six years in the profession. And so I decided to cycle solo across Europe in the search of whatever that next sort of career was going to be. Uh, so when you, I really found that once I was stepping outside of my own comfort zone, you really um, trigger these responses in, in other people and the fear in other people that I think a lot of the time wasn't actually to do with myself, but you're almost challenging their own paradigm of what they feel capable or, or, or able to do. So that was probably, I really did find one of the most scary things, sharing with other people in the lead up what I was going to do because I felt so fragile and almost criticised or if other people, if I told people and then they thought that I wasn't capable or able to do it the way that that really rocked my own self-confidence. Um, and then once I was out there, it was really pretty good. Like it was painful and it was you know, it was, it was tiring and half the time I didn't know what I was doing, but it was just so beautiful as well. Yeah, sure. So it was, uh, yeah, it was really my introduction to the, I don't know, the, the field of adventure, I guess you could say. And uh, it was reading this, re reading a book of these two guys that, that, that cycled all, all the way across Siberia. Um, and I just remember reading this book going, I didn't know that you were allowed to do that. And they seemed equally as ill-prepared as what I so overall, that journey just made me so much more open-minded to what I could do and what I was capable of. And it has only continued to get 
stronger and stronger and stronger over time, which then ultimately led me to this to the to the really big adventure, uh, which was rowing across the Pacific Ocean from California to Hawaii with two other women. And yeah, when you look at it on paper, it just seems like an insane thing to do. <laughs> I'm 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 in that category. <laughs> did, where did you leave from? Did you leave from uh, uh, Santa Monica or? Uh, we left from uh, Monterey Bay. So yeah, right. just oh wow, uh, up in San Francisco. Uh, a bit, area. bit south of San Francisco, yeah. Wow, that and then is. Came a... into Oahu in Hawaii, so it was about twenty four hundred nautical miles. So yeah, some four or five thousand kilometers. Uh, yeah, so it was quite quite the way. So how did that take place? I can't even. I can't even imagine how how you mapped that out or how you kept going. To be honest, uh, so it was part of so so it was part of an event called the Great Pacific Race. Um, so there were was myself on the, on this one boat with uh, with Meg and Kaz, so the the two others, and then there were you know four or five other boats in the race as well. But three of those, one of them didn't turn up to the start line. Another two boats bowed out in the first couple of weeks due to seasickness and the and the conditions. And the way that it came about that I was uh, on this crew, it was, say, six, I think it was six months before the race started, I'd watched this ocean rowing documentary. So the first time that, you know, that piqued my interest, it was reading this book and then I cycled across Europe and then this time it was watching this documentary and immediately when the credits rolled, I emailed this, this crew. I just Googled ocean rowing crews and the first one that I found that was doing, you know, an, an expedition coming up, I emailed them. And they said that the crew was full said that they would put me on the reserve list. I didn't believe them. And lo and behold, I got the call up six weeks before we were supposed to leave. So look, I was probably one of the least qualified people in the world to be on that boat, if I'm totally honest. But I was the person that had my hand up, which ended up being the kick on the seasickness, but then just going from doing a regular amount of exercise in a day all of a sudden to rowing for 12 hours a day and, and on a background of basically no rowing experience whatsoever. So how did you... Um... I can imagine there was a lot of things going through your brain during this. So can you speak to some of those moments that you can yeah, remember? So one of the most difficult uh, times was probably 12 days in and the seasickness was getting really, it was really severe. Um, I think I was having all of this kidney pain, you know, just really not even be able to keep down much water or anything like that. And I just remember lying there in all this pain and having to go and row and it's the middle of the night and there's these waves crashing over the deck. It's just, it's a, like, the only way I can describe it is a hellish environment, like in those particular moments. Uh, and the thing that got me through was I brought some letters from friends and family. Um, there was a really dear friend of mine uh, and, a, and a mentor of mine at the time. I had a letter from, from Aaron and I opened that letter on the 12th day and he'd written that letter, you know, knowing that I would open it in a moment of difficulty and a, and a moment of hardship. And it was enough to just get me through those next moments. And when things are, th are that hard, all you can do is just try and get through the next five or 10 seconds, because that's all that you're capable of doing. So it was just turning up to this cycle of making it through the next, you know, minute, two minutes, three minutes. And if you keep showing up to those hard moments enough times in a row, then eventually it can turn into something quite, quite enormous. So, so moment by moment. <laughs> that's amazing. So did your body adapt to the seasickness? Is that what you think happened? Your brain? So eventually, so we, 
we were also um, trialing different amounts of, you know, anti-seasickness medication. I think on about, about day 15 or 16, I had a conversation with the, with the doctor via the satellite phone out there. And I think we tripled the dose of my seasickness medication, but I was wearing this patch under my ear that was illegal in Australia because it gives people hallucinations. Like I had tried, you know, everything under the sun to get this under control. So I think it was some combination of increasing the, the dosage and then finally adapting like a lot of people are seasick for three or five days but for some reason it just hung around for me for a really long time I and, then that most, after that. and that's what makes most people turn around yes yes it does it's just oh just this uh unrelenting feeling it's yeah it's it's god awful so I, I don't blame anybody who's who's bowed out in that moment that's for sure I was very so- close to it myself yeah. So how, what, um, let's speak to how you kept going, because that's the thing that there's always the thing about the brain and our body's ability to adapt to pain is quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And the glory does come after the pain, doesn't it? Once you realize yeah. that, that you can do anything, a lot of things yeah. change, doesn't it? Do you Absolutely. Want to speak to some of those moments that you can now recall in your big adventures. Yeah, like, you know, on the the cycle journey, that certainly uh, stands out to me in, you know, just feeling like being able to cycle 100 kilometres in a day seemed like such an impossible feat, even though I knew that it was, you know, technically possible. But it's one of those things that you hear it and it's like, oh, well, it's possible for other people, but it's not possible for me. And I think it's absolutely something that we have to be able to you know, we can we can get inspired, I think, by other people and by the things that they've done. But in the end, you know, I think we can really be the most inspired actually by ourselves. And when we prove to ourselves that we're capable of doing something and then that cycle just continues to repeat and repeat and repeat. So if you can get yourself in the position where you're pushing yourself just enough that it is outside your comfort zone, but it's not something that feels completely impossible. Um, I think that can create a really beautiful environment, uh, you know, to then keep engineering your own future success. And this is a great spot to talk about this, isn't it? Because often when we look at all like Richard Branson just flying into space or yeah. you doing those, that that rowing from uh, Monterey Bay to Oahu, that seems outside the realm for most people. They think that you're special, yeah. that there's no way anyone listening to this could do it. So let's talk to that because let's talk about before you became this adventurous person. Do you want to mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit? Because they're going to say you're you were born like this. Um, oh, so- absolutely, and no, I absolutely wasn't born like this. That is for sure. Uh, so yeah, I grew up, and I remember uh, I was never. I'd always have a I'd always have a crack at PE, but I was never the kid that was winning the races and winning any ribbons and you know going to the district events and, and stuff like that. I definitely wasn't that kid. I think I went to try it for basketball when I was six years old. And they asked me to do a layup and I didn't know what that was. And I think I ran out crying and I don't think I ever went back again. <laughs> um, my, I've got two older sisters, so they're eight and nine years older than me. And Katrina, the, our middle sister, she just loves cycling. Certainly wasn't the kid who was, I wasn't a particularly sporty kid. I would have a go at PE, but I wasn't the kid who was, you know, I wasn't winning any medals. I wasn't rip winning any ribbons. I wasn't, you know, the, the fastest runner or the highest jumper or, or anything like that. 
And, um, and in some ways, I think I was a little bit scared and afraid some of the time. I think I went to try it for a basketball team when I was six years old and they asked me to do a layup. And I think I was so scared by that terminology even because I didn't know what the heck they were talking about uh, and just sort of perceived that as being my own failing. And I think I ran out of that, the, the stadium, you know, crying and I never went back to, to join the basketball team again. So, um, no, I wasn't some, you know, sporty, gifted, super athletic kid. The, the big sort of change for me, it really came from, um, you know, it, it really did come from the, the inspiration of those books and those documentaries and hearing the stories, I think, as opposed to like, you know, we have such an adoration, I think, for our elite athletes. And of course, as we should, they're, they're incredible. But the thing that really stood out to me about the more the stories that these, adve- these other adventurers tell is how ordinary they are. And it does show the progression from them being a completely, you know, average person with not some incredible level of sporting prowess. Um, They're not usually these elite athletes that are highly trained beforehand and just slowly stepping them through and really completely just muddling their way through the, the process. So it was the permission to be allowed to do to be allowed to do something slowly and to be allowed to be mediocre at it. And heck, it could have taken me, you know, six months to cycle across Europe. And that would have been just as much of a success as if it took me, you know, 55 days or, or whatever it took. So it's not about how fast you go or, you know, how strong you are. The thing that is the marker of, uh, you know, this adventurous mindset more so is just the willingness to give it a crack and being open to the fact that it might go completely terribly But if it goes completely terribly, you have still done something that you never, ever had done before. And that is an enormous triumph. So one of the um, there's a a UK adventurer, his name is Alastair Humphreys, and he created this this terminology about 10 years ago called the micro adventure. And a micro adventure to him, uh, by his definition, is, you know, these these small adventures that are doable and and achievable for everyday people that are close to home. Because, yeah, we can't always, yeah, whether it's because of lockdown or whether it's because of our other commitments, we can't always go out for these huge periods of time. And you are absolutely right that it is not necessary to have to go for long periods of time to get the benefit. Um, So, you know, even just going camping overnight yeah in a you know there's so many national parks that we're blessed to have in Australia and just going out camping overnight um you know can be incredible and uh you know the whole idea with the micro adventure as well is you can even go uh you know you can finish work at five o'clock on Tuesday providing you're not not locked down in your own home and if you're able to travel that distance of course um you know leave work at say five o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon go and camp for the night you wake up on the Wednesday morning hike back out again or cycle back out again and then be back at your desk ready to go to work again on a Wednesday and you know it doesn't have to be the weekend you don't have to be on a a period of annual leave to be able to go and do these things and I think part of them this you know trying to develop that mindset to be able to thrive in these environments is just asking the question of, well, what can I do? And how how could I implement these things to be a little more possible? And it could even just be as simple as, you know, doing an activity that you you haven't done before. If you've never gone stand-up paddleboarding, you know, try that. And it, or if you've never been kayaking before, if you've never been just trail running as on a, on a bushwalking track instead of walking, even if you only run for 500 metres, it creates a very different experience than, than just walking, for example, or vice versa. 
I think it is, it's a trap that we can fall into sometimes is, uh, and particularly it can be a perception that we have of others that their success happened overnight um, or that something happened, you know, very, that it's seemingly to the outside world happened very quickly when if you go and ask that individual, of course, it's it's been this tiny, tiny incremental progress. So I think it's just, yeah, those micro steps are so important. And if the step feels too big, if it feels overwhelming and it feels like it's not doable, um, then I would say, you know, break it down. And does that piece feel any more doable? And if it still feels impossible, break it down further. And to the extent where, you know, the, the first tangible step that I ever took towards rolling across the Pacific Ocean was just a tiny step outside my comfort zone of sending this ridiculous email to this crew that I never thought in a million years I would even get a response to, let alone that it may actually result in me rowing across the Pacific Ocean. But, you know, that literally the sending of an email that takes you three minutes to write can change the course of your life. And there is no, you know, a, a tiny action. Sometimes people just really underestimate the significance that it can have. So, even if it feels so ridiculously small, but if it's something that you can do, then that is the thing to do. Joined by Ken Loftus, and he's been working in the healthy mind field for 20 years. And he only moved to Brisbane five years ago from Ireland, which you might see in his accent sometimes or not. <laughs> uh, he's worked um, with many people under the age of 18 in residential care, in uh, suicide crisis centres, and in schools. And he's now founded very lucky for us who live in Brisbane, the Sunlight Centre, only four years ago in South Brisbane. And I'm sure he's got, he's going to tell us all about that today. His favourite um, therapy, he tells us, is uh, CBT, and he loves evolutionary psychology, which I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about today, I hope. And so welcome, Ken. Thank you for coming onto the podcast and sharing your time with everyone. No problem, Selena. Thank you for having me. So I guess... I can hear there. They're going to hear a little bit of a dash of a uh, Canadian accent from my mom. And then yeah. uh, as I get more relaxed into the talk, they'll hear more Irish coming through. That seems On your research or readings over you know, centuries, when, when, when did it start that men weren't meant to cry, do you think? How far back does that go? Uh, I, my only educated guess is the moment when I got a, a man or a woman, but I'm guessing a man, unfortunately, some of the kind of, you know, naturally you know let's go back caveman stuff realized they weren't that strong but wanted the top mates and wanted the top food and wanted the top cave that's when that person started saying stuff like actually um i think the sun is a god what who said that the guy that can't throw a spear yeah 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 and that's through anthropology to be honest you know another anthropology that that little step where it changed from the strongest was the chief to, hey, who's this witch doctor we're talking to? Well, he controls the rain. But it didn't rain last season. That's because he said someone didn't believe him. Oh, that's, that's quite convenient. Somewhere along the line, this big, giant, silly brain of ours grew a bigger extra cortex on it and started overthinking. <laughs> you know, let's perceive time. Let's perceive everything. Let's perceive death. And that's really when the mental health started, you know, crashing. And, um, but that one little sneaky person that's able to go, I want all that what he has, but I haven't got the strength to fight him. I've got to use my wits to outwit him. Then they were able to kind of use more of a mental warfare. That's where like, geez, 
bullying comes in where I see it in, in the schools, the grade eight and grade nine, they're moving from childhood to young adulthood, which enters them into the young caveman style and young cave person style, where they go, look, I can't go up and just, you know, punch this guy. I know I'll break him down emotionally. That means he's down here and I'm up here and I'm the chief. And if I get all that positive accolade and all that positive reaffirmation, I'm the chief, I'll get the best girlfriend, I'll get attention. That means I'm, I'm winning. And just that natural urge of competitiveness kicks in. I see it, you know, and it's, it's how do we change that two point odd million years of, of, of evolution of that? If, if I'm the strongest and I'm the chief, I get the extra food, I can choose my mate. And that means I can pass on my genes successfully and I can survive longer. That drives even people now. Um, like I said earlier, we, we try to manage the anger instead of managing the trigger or the behavior after. Um, what, do, what does our community do? Uh, I'll, I'll be honest with you too. You know, I think podcast is a great place to kind of have a little honesty that, it, I, you know, I'm rarely on kind of normal free-to-air TV, but when the ads pop up of the latest reality show and they promote it, by showing the most embarrassing moment of the person. They show us the arguments, they show us the fighting, they show us the belittling. I think reality shows are the modern gladiatorial arenas. We want to watch something terrible happening to someone that isn't us. So our life seems a little better. That's not community focused. Going down to the gladiatorial arena in Rome and, and saying, hey, let's just slaughter a bunch of Catholic Christians because we're not Christians and haven't eaten today, but at least I'm not that guy. That's what's happening now. Look at that weird guy who's obviously got some issues and they're putting him on big screen TV and he's going to get slated on social media. Isn't that hilarious? It's not me though. That's not community focus. That's not tribal strong. That is just glad we're not them. And it's keeping us happy. But it's a fake happiness, I think. If we're able to, you know, you walk past the magazine stand that are all at the end of the Woolies counters and the Coles counters, you know, and it's like, what Royal has done something horrible now? And it's all lies as well. It's obvious lies. But people want to read how horrible a rich person's life is. Well, I'm not rich. They've got money. Oh, but they're feeling really crap right now. Isn't that great? That's not community focused and that's not um, tribal strong. So, I know it's a bigger picture, but I think if we're able to take that breath and, 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 and pull back a little from that style, it would help create a more, more caring, warm connection. Um, with the Sunlight Center, people can easily ring us up either just for figure out what you know, ask what we do, email us. If they feel they want to talk about suicide or self-harm or concern about a family member, it's a it's a the message system at the moment, they leave a message and we get back to them, either myself or Samira or Linda, and we'll get in touch with them. And, you know, geez, within a week or two weeks, they're sitting in a chair opposite a therapist. Um, or local community clubs like sports clubs and and um, even sports, sorry, you know, like the more of the bigger sports clubs and stuff like that, they're getting in touch. And we're trying to give them free healthy mind workshops. To be honest, I... I wish the Sunlight Center wasn't needed. If in theory, everyone had the tools to work with their own emotional 
and regulation and their cognitive processing, they had them to catch everything at three out of 10 and four out of 10, then it wouldn't be hitting the seven out of 10 when the brain says, hey, here's an option. I, I actually just think we're a, we're a big bunch of mutated monkeys, to be honest. And, you know, you just look at the nature documentaries of the big gorillas or the chimps. And if there's a snake on the ground and a baby chimp wants to play with it, the mom freaks out. So the baby learns to freak out too about the snake and that's survival. However, now you get a parent who has high anxiety, even if it's social or even unidentified, and they worry, oh, oh, they make those big, you know, gasping noises. And that baby then goes, okay, okay, I'll get scared. I'll get scared. And I believe that's a prerequisite for an anxious kid when they're older. The amount of, the younger I, the kid I get with the higher anxious issue, then it's usually a parent with anxiety. Do you know, yeah. I have a 17-year-old, not much else there. It's a very identifiable trigger for the anxiety. Maybe not a parent. But if I get a grade five coming in, I'm really heightened anxiety. and I'm terrified about A, B, and C. Oh, what do you tell me about your family? Oh, yeah, mom has it too. Uh, okay. You know, now the heartbreaking thing is I remember twice now. I'm like, okay, you know what? We can work on this. We've got a few models for this. You know, we'll come in, come in every week. We'll do a bit of work on it. Oh, no, it's fine. I'm already medicated. What? Well, mom's medicated for her anxiety, so they just got me medicated. I know. And they oh. haven't been tested on those young brains, those drugs on the pharmacist. It really is. that This is the bit that's heart-wrenching to me. It's heart-wrenching yeah, yeah, yeah. because as someone that studies neuroplasticity and maps brain changes, the one thing I do know is that those drugs can, because those brains are incredibly plastic mm. and they can, these drugs, uh, they don't leave the system. They change the brain too. And we don't know the long-term consequences of all of these things. And, and this gets us to this great point that you just raised. Uh, I love, I'm so glad you raised it. And this is the number one thing that really, I think we need to change as a society is to recognize that children are just reflections of adults. Yeah. And so unless the adults are willing to do what we're asking children to do, they will never do it because they literally, we learned to speak human language evolved because of mirror neurons, that neuron, that mirror neuron system in the front part of the brain is so powerful and they mm. mirror, like you just have to try it out um, and see just how much they mirror what you're doing. Cause they don't really have the capability yet. They don't have the networks to do this yeah. high order cognitive thinking yet. So they're yeah. just, they're learning the environment through us. Even when I was a lot younger, it would irk me a little when you'd see parents talk normally with their mate about whatever content they wanted. Then their four-year-old would come up, oh, hello, how are you? And as they thought, as long as they changed their tone, the kid didn't hear anything else. You know, I had one mother come in last year. She was very heightened herself, very frustrated with, with the situation. And she shared a little about her own past. And it wasn't a nice one. It was trauma going through, I think, the foster system, et cetera. But because her son, who was only 10 years old, was acting out a little, she's like, she got so angry. I will make sure he is a good father. I will make sure he is a good husband. I will not have him act angry. I said, but, but you're acting angry. I said, if I got a bowl of M&Ms and spilled them on the floor and got a vacuum cleaner and expected only the blue ones to go in, they all go in. And that's your kid's brain. Your kid's takes it all in. And it, that's how it forms reality, is perception of it all. How to deal with situations. Oh, I'll use anger. But I told you not to use anger. But 
you're using anger. So the action is speaking louder than the content, of course. Of the course. signified, the signified over the signifier, and and that's just driving that learning for that young person. And can we add, it's not the parents' fault either because they're doing what they were taught. And so this is yeah. where the, this is where the education, the self awareness, this is the beauty of knowledge turning the science turning into knowledge, turning into ways to change going forward. It's not a blame game here. Parents no. are and love their children. They're doing the best they can with the knowledge that they have I, I see that all the time across all societies yeah. um it's not even of course but because you don't know what was done to them you don't know anyone's story um and you yeah. and it takes a long time even them they don't even know their story a lot of the time <laughs> but don't parents parents fear one massive thing being seen as a crap parent yes of course and so they do so much even on unconscious levels to hide or to avert divert paint blame or anything or you know, see in the school setting a lot because they don't want to come across like they're doing the wrong thing. And yeah. I tell them the truth. I say, Look, I tell the kids the reality. Us parents don't know what we're doing. We just give it a good go. We're yeah. driven by a little bit of instinct. But we're also driven by a societal creation of you have to educate your kid. You have to do all that. And that's not instinct. Well, there is a little bit of instinct of education, of course, to make sure they're not playing with that snake, of course, you know. But there's a lot of societal input, I think, on the, na- the nurture side of things where parents have taken it all in like, if I don't do this right, I might be seen as a bad parent. Then I'm judged. And of course, go back to the tribal thing. Bad parents are useless in a tribe. <laughs> you know? so. Yeah, absolutely. And and so this is where we've got to stop the blame game, don't we, and give people more tools. Um, and yeah, and it's not about it's not about what I what I see is the what I see is really important as a linchpin to change the way we're doing things is to stop doing more things to kids. Mm-hmm. A lot of kids, especially under 10, I feel like the adults need to do, be doing more mm-hmm. in the education front to see what they can do for their own brain health. Cause it'll help them across mm-hmm. their lifespan. And then that'll have a much easier mirror neuron effect for their children Rather than always, you know what I mean? We give so many more, like medicating kids, giving them more things to do. I see so many more programs going into schools because we've got to throw, because we've got to help the kids get better by five because of all the data on early education and everything. But honestly, we've taken out play for mindfulness and nature and things like that. And I think that's, I think we have to really have a good think about that before it goes too far. Yeah, and a spike in allergies because the parents are avoiding exposing their kids to certain things until they're older. And the body's natural response is, no, don't, don't let me near that thing. Um, and I get a lot of parents coming in and they share a lot about their kid and they seem upset. And I say, well, what, what are you getting for support? Oh, no, I'm fine. Well, do you go to counseling? Oh, no, I wouldn't go to counseling. But you want your kid to go to counseling? Yeah, you know, I unfortunately we can't choose to be that role model but you naturally are because you're the guardian you're that authoritative figure where where the natural uh teacher of that young person just absorbing it all in and if you're able to say hey guess what sometimes i don't know everything so how do we figure it out together how do we get support together you know that's amazing i think role modeling to know let's educate together you know let's do some of these brain exercises together Absolutely. to help ourselves absolutely um, I, I would throw in a healthy dash of self-compassion today we're joined by guy mcgillivray 
who is a registered psychologist working in Port Lincoln. And he has someone that is supporting children and adults with disabilities. And we're going to hear from Guy today. We're really excited to hear about all the work he's doing, but also some of the stuff he's doing around brain health and fitness. Welcome, Guy, to the podcast. Thank you, Selena. It's, um, it's a bit unreal that I'm on here, but thank you very much for having me. Joined. So I'm interested to see with all of your experience in the field now, what would you say is one of the most difficult and important issues facing people that um, makes you want to stay doing what you're doing and what difference do you see that you can make um, in this field? I think the thing I come across the most and the thing I talk probably the most about with individuals I work you know, in my work is this society we live in has this view that there are good emotions and bad emotions, that you should be happy, you should be excited and surprised, all these are good emotions, you should be like that all the time, and that being sad and angry and anxious and nervous are all bad emotions and you shouldn't feel them, when really that's not the human condition. You know, we have emotions and they're sometimes helpful and they're sometimes not. And helping people understand that it's okay to be sad and that our brain's actually doing that on for a reason that we get anxious for a reason really takes a lot of pressure off people and especially if you're feeling stressed because you're not happy when you feel like you should then that leads to all kinds of conditions like depression anxiety and high levels of stress so that's why i want to stay in it to help. But, um, through our work our kind of joint interest in brain health. Mm -hmm. so I'm kind of curious to know what you have learned about the brain stress and sugar and what you've been doing lately that has really changed your mind potentially about how the brain works. Did I, did I tell you how I found out about like your podcast? No. no so about, about five months ago, I was doing a, a work trip, a regional trip, and I was listening on the local ABC radio and you did an interview on, with one of the presenters talking about um, sugar and how you can, you know, how it's possible to quit sugar. And uh, I think the presenter was quite dismissive. He was like, there's no way I could do that. I've never yes, that. I that one. I'm sure you've heard that a million times. And I was listening to it and I thought, that's such an interesting perspective that you had. And so then I found your podcast and I started listening to them. And the more I listened, the more I went, this is something that this is something that I struggle with. This is something that I'm doing. These exact things you were describing, you know, using sugar as a way to deal with stress and a variety of other things. I'm going, this is what I'm doing to myself. And I didn't even realize. For me, it's, and it's, I can now trace it back to when I was, you know, young, like just, you know, being rewarded for doing something great by getting some sort of a sugar hit or, you know, you played sport and then after sport, you get a, drink and it's full of sugar and it's then you you know you've had a good day and so you treat yourself to a bowl of ice cream or you've had a really bad day so you dealing with that day by eating chocolate and just every day just the amount of sugar the cause and let's so i think that balance if we could talk a little bit about that like yes you can start reducing sugar but then you also have to deal with the reason why which is that stress component that you talk about so let's let's talk a little bit about what you did next i guess it's realizing all right so i'm using sugar um as this crutch to kind of hold myself together when i'm dealing with um 
again, high levels of stress that, and I know you've mentioned this a few times in podcast, just the amount of stress worldwide that we've all experienced in the last two years, like just increased. Well, let's say you're a father of three children too, under the age of what? What's what's the eldest? He's eight. Yeah, three children yeah. under the age of eight. That is not a that's not a calm calming time of our lives either. Uh, yeah, they're they all pocket rockets. My three boys. Uh, yes, they had their book week dress up yesterday, and uh, they all went as ninjas because <laughs> boys can only dress up as ninjas. So, um, yeah, so. So we're okay, so I'm, I'm having all this sugar. And I'll be honest, that reaction that radio presenter had is, you know, a reaction I've had. Like, there's no way I can quit it. There's no way, you know, this is just a part of my life, you know. But then you described how it actually, how the chemistry and how it actually, the wiring that goes into that. And it's like, well, okay, let's see if we can actually do this. Let's see if I can actually. And it took, you know, three or four weeks of detox, which is, you know, Did you that, do? That, can you talk a little bit? Like the audience is really, really interested in what you're saying right now because I get asked this a lot, and I tell them what I did. But everyone's so different. So mm-hmm. I'm interested in your perspective of how you started the journey. Like for me, it was kind of one thing at a time. And James Mukey talks about going cold turkey and having withdrawal symptoms. So I'm interested in what you actually did. Um, I guess I, I put things in the you know, for some people. You know, one step at a time works perfectly for them. But I knew for myself that I have to completely cut it. It has to be a complete commitment because if I, as soon as I start letting a little bit in, then it just yeah. can snowball. Um, I remember at university they talked about people are either leavers or finishers, you know. And I grew up with a brother who would always leave his Easter chocolate for weeks and weeks and weeks, and mine would be gone after one day. So I knew that I had to completely cut it all out, like no sugar. Um, apart from fruit, um, and even then, it's like limiting just the amount of fruit. Yeah, was just like everything gone. And three weeks, three or four weeks, it was it was hard. Like the physical withdrawals, like the headaches, the body just feeling like the need to have it. But after that, once it kind of mellowed out, it was like, okay, you know what? I can actually do this. But as you said, like I wasn't dealing with the underlying cause, which is stress from work and just stress from life so well you're putting together a really big part of your life right now so there's no doubt you're not going to change that part of it right so it's what you can do instead to deal with it that's the key isn't it definitely and you um you then talk about another podcast about your morning routine how you sort of you know go through the three three things that you're grateful for in the morning while looking so i was like you know what if the sugar thing worked, well, let's see if this works too. So, you know, in the mornings now I get up and I try and get up before the kids get up because that's just a tornado <laughs> once they get up. But, um, and just kind of just think about all the things that I'm grateful for. Um, what are some of those, just to, if you don't mind sharing? Family, friends, um, like, my religious faith is really important to me. So just being thankful for that and actually spending the time in sort of in my own sort of meditative prayer, just in just like, like let's just bring everything down. Let's start the day full. And then I can tell now I might, you know, suddenly feel like I'm really snappy at home. Like, why am I being so snappy? I haven't actually done this for a couple of days. 
Oh, gee, okay. So next morning, do it. And suddenly it's like, I just feel like the days just aren't as crazy. They just feel like a misunderstanding of what my body is going through, my brain's going through. Just these things can be done. And it's, um, I guess, which is one of the, you know, um, why I was really excited to come on here with you is to be able to tell people that you can actually do this. You might be sitting listening to this and going, there's no way I can quit sugar. It's part of my life. It's, I just have stress in my life. That's just the way it is, but it doesn't have to be that way. I'm by Professor Kerry Carrington. And Kerry has been advocating her whole life outside running the School of Justice for everyday people. I think, I think without breaking the silence, everything keeps continuing. So welcome, Kerry, to the podcast. It's so great to have you. Thank you for inviting me, Selena. I needed a home when I was homeless and young and I needed to escape a very uh, dysfunctional background and upbringing and was left without any parents. And so um, I discovered that university was free and not only free, but I would be paid by the government to attend. <laughs> so I just so I ended up a student. It's an amazing uh, story, isn't it? So what? when was that? Um, okay, so the first year of my university was in 1980. I went to Griffith University. Um, yes, I was living alone without any parents at the age of 15, and I was living with my brother, then Randall Carrington, yeah. um, until he was taken away and locked up in a mental institution. And so I was just very fortunate, and that made an incredible change to my life because access to education is, is about access to justice. It's a leveller. And so then um, when I finished my degree, I went on and did a PhD, um, um, and then I just sort of... But my PhD was on female delinquency, and it was on girls who... Um, I studied 1,046 girls who ended up in juvenile justice system. And then I discovered that half of them were, in fact, state wards and that most of them were, in fact, not in fact delinquents but, but victims. So are either victims of homelessness, family violence, rape. Um, and I discovered that most of them should never have been put in these institutions. I also discovered that the institutions we'd set up to care for neglected children were, in fact, the same ones they set up to care for delinquent children. So they mixed them together. And they, treat, and they treated them all as if they they were offenders. Um, and so they were in the... In, so and, I became passionate and that, about... Justice. And that number hasn't changed in 2022, by the way. It's actually escalated, I believe. What's that? The number, the number of... Kids from, uh, in, from child protection and other places. That oh, yes. Jail. In fact, if anything, it's increasing. So children who have... have, have fam who come from traumatic backgrounds who end up in the care sector... They're the ones who are most vulnerable to being um, doing, doing the fast track from care to detention and then from there going from there into jail. Um, and that it's a whole intergenerational life cycle. And that's why also many of them are Indigenous or they're from very poor backgrounds. Now, that almost happened to me and that could have happened to me. But very luckily, for some strange reason, it didn't happen to me. Let's um, and... focus on that bit for a second, because I think this is the remarkable part of your story before we turn to your brother's story, which is a bit of a different story, but I have a similar one. So um, who was the person that told you about this university being free and seeing you seeing the potential in you that obviously you didn't have parents to do it? 
And who who was the, can you think of the aha moment where all of a sudden yeah. it said to you that you could do that? It was, it was, it was a school teacher and it was a school guidance counsellor. I mean, we want to amplify this message because this happens nearly every day for, and teachers are so underappreciated and underpaid and doing such hard job. And I'm still in contact with some of those teachers. They were just give them a shout out. Give them a shout out. Shout out to my teachers, Pat Offie, Jules Johnson, Clarkie, Danny Boyle, um, Peter Flaskus. Um, they used to go surfing with us too, some of them. And um, obviously we want to share your beautiful brother's story. Mm. And I think the interesting thing here, Kerry, the reason I, I pivot here is because this is all families. This is my story too. Like I went to university. My sister ended up in Walston Park like your brother did. Um, and people always ask these questions. So how come you went to university and how come your sister ended up there? You know, this is the question I tried to address for a long time too, which I think I found the answer to. So do you want to talk a little bit about your sure. story? And, yes, and well, Randall's? I will. Okay, so really my story is my, my brother's story. They're intermeshed. So he was born one year before me. Um, basically, our mother left us when I was 15. I went and lived with her boyfriend. Our father had already left the home at much earlier because he was a chronic alcoholic. He came back from the war and had PTSD. And so it was just Randall and I living in what was the family house, but with no money. And um, my mother wanted me to go out and get a job. And I said, no, I'm going to go to school. And my teachers were saying, no, Carrie, you can come to school. We'll, we'll support you. We'll support you. So my teachers used to pay for my excursions and things and my teachers and I had friends that used to feed me and the women at the tuck shop would give me leftovers. So that's kind of how I survived. So this and, is the village uh, taking care of its Yes. Kids. So they sort of took over. And then this really tragic thing happened where I was I was I, I was coping and and my brother wasn't going to school. He left school the day he turned 15. Um, he used to get the cuts every day. He hated school. He was ostracized. He was treated. My turns out my brother was gay, bisexual. Um, he was discovered by police wandering naked, and then there was a Ended up in Lozen House, which was a, um, a locked ward at the Brisbane Hospital. He was 17 years of age. I was just, I, I must have been 16. Um, Wiki and I have been living together for, like this for some time. So then my whole world shook. I was there by myself and he was put in a locked ward. And then when it, he just did, they didn't. They gave him shock treatment and then they gave him more and more shock treatment. And then he ended up becoming comatose and so the day he turned 18 I went to visit him to give him a pair of flare jeans because it was you know the 19, 1970s and the flare jeans were really groovy and turned up to a Lozen house and he's not there they told me he they'd sent him to um, made him a ward of the state and they admitted him to Pierce house at Walston Park um, I couldn't I was just desperate at one stage to, to, to get him to remember me or remember anything of himself. And I was looking into his eyes and it was as if he was in an existential crisis. It was, he was there, but he wasn't there. Yes. And then they were giving him, yeah, and then they were giving him so much pharmaceuticals as well. 
But the most horrifying thing was that I witnessed not just his decline and I, I witnessed him morph from a beautiful young man, so creative and a poet and an artist and really intelligent into a vegetable. But not only that, um, I witnessed him being cruelly tortured and I witnessed, I witnessed the most horrible event in my whole life, I think, was the first day I went to Pierce House surrounded by a pack of wardens he was naked and he was bending over a bunch of cloth I can feel your pain I've I've actually sat in the same room and watched my sister sitting in the corner like a piece of cardboard catatonic from my overdose of haloperidol and she was only in that I don't know if it's the same place but a similar place uh, lock up made water the state but you know interestingly this was 1988 89s, which is not that long in Australian Brisbane history and it's just in the north part of Brisbane and most people living around there would have no idea what was going on there. So back to your um, message of break the silence. I think there's the key message here is if we keep everything in silence, nothing will change. That's the bottom line. So it's not just about you trying to take down something. It's more about without breaking this silence, we can't make people aware because there's a lot of people that would be completely unaware because they've not been in touch with this kind of they've never had exposure to this right not everyone yes. does um, but without being aware we can't make change and then we need to come together as a society to make that big change because it's a it's a multi-layered change that we have to make absolutely and we can do it together and this is not about this is not a negative this is not driven by negative energy to, about vengeance this, this is about Let's seek justice for real and others like him so that one, we never do it again. Two, we do it better. Three, we start to look at what we really need to do now to, to, to break that cycle of intergenerational trauma and mental health and illness and uh, and disadvantage. So, it, you know, there are, it's about inviting people to come on a positive journey as well. Um, Absolutely. I think that's key for, for us to really drive change is um, once you get through the trauma of, and grief of your life and seeing what happened to your family the next step is okay how do we go to the next stage because we, we we've got to change it you know absolutely so do do? Yeah. to do that who do we support what do we have to do what are the policy settings and that's mm. the beauty of being in justice isn't it Kerry in your absolutely. life you've seen this happen haven't you before invited to have Sakuraku Kobayashi here today who's a PhD student at the University of Melbourne and she has very kindly given up her time to talk to us today about the things that she's done that have allowed her to achieve something very amazing for such a young woman. So thank you for joining us. And she's happy for us to call her Saki. So thank you, Saki. Yes. Hi, Selena. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you. So would you like to introduce well, yourself to the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as Selena mentioned, I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne. I'm officially one year in and um, I'm also conducting my studies at the Peter Mac Hospital um, down here in Melbourne. So Saki, um, this is really unusual because you're actually uh, raised in Queensland um, for mm -hmm. some time and did your undergraduate degree there. So it's pretty inspirational um, to see that you made the choice to not only start a PhD, which is not necessarily a traditional pathway for many people, and also move to Melbourne, which is one of the top 
places for doing what you've chosen to do in Australia. So what inspired you to do that? Um, it was a number of reasons. Um, so the first question about conducting the PhD, I mean, like I was, um, I had a lot of influence from my parents. So my mom, she's a GP and my dad's um, currently retired, but he used to be an embryologist um, in uh, cattle and in that industry. So um, I had a lot of uh, influence from my parents coming from that background, which sort of led me into um, discovering science. And I knew I really enjoyed studying it as well. I liked studying in general, um, but yeah, throughout the uh, biomed degree, I didn't really know uh, what to specialize in, um, but I, I knew I liked um, the, the environment as well. I started putting my foot in the door at around like the second or third year into my degree. Um, and uh, by that, I, I sort of um, uh, volunteered at a few labs and predominantly biomedical science labs. And so um, one thing led to another and I, I decided to pursue a PhD degree during my honours. And so that led me into here. So would, can you remember um, that aha moment, the light bulb going off, like when you were doing some of these internships, exploring your passion? Mm -hmm. Can you, like, can you, often we can remember those mm. moments that turned us from maybe pursuing a medical pathway as your mother had compared to taking that scientific journey that many people kind of find quite scary what do you remember the moment um there wasn't the one moment but I guess it was just like the mystery um uh behind the science and also sitting through the lectures and there was always a common theme right I mean you're probably familiar with this with this but it was always like we think this might be happening but we don't know yet and we have all these competing theories that challenge what we currently know and that aspect I really really enjoyed um in that it wasn't so black and white textbook, like, oh, this is what this is and this is what organ this is, you know. It was um, the mystery element that really drew me in. So it might be a good opportunity right <laughs> now to, to, tell the, to tell everyone listening, what, is, what are you actually studying and what is this new yeah. unknown element that none of us <laughs> know about yet? Yeah, absolutely. So um, at the moment, my PhD project is studying lymphatic vasculature and its development. Um, I'm looking into this particular pathway that is um, known to be a hallmark of cancer. So we think that um, this element may be influencing how the lymphatic system is um, developed during cancer. So for other young people, um, women, men and other people, can you give uh, maybe three things that help you stay motivated um, to pursue things where you hit lots of roadblocks in this kind of pathway of going after something that's really dear to your heart? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, for me, I don't really have like um, very major motivations that will probably will work for everyone, you know, but for me personally, like I find waking up in the morning early helps me a lot. Have, having a proper routine um, keeps me on track, absolutely. And um, I don't know, uh, just having a support network around you and, you know, um, as well as the routine, but also using the support network to update people on what you're doing, I think 
motivates me and that just the general interest me 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 in getting them interested makes me interested as well so yeah I think that helps a lot with the motivation and um the drive for waking up every morning and doing what I do <laughs> so can I ask you when did you discover that waking up early strategy how long have you been applying that has that been lifelong or was it something you came into yourself or what was it um well I found that like waking up late <laughs> kind of affects my motivation so um that helped <laughs> discover that um yeah I think yeah it just comes with time you know you find it's kind of like an experiment what you do in the lab you find things that optimize and that work for you and you just go with that you don't question it right yeah. <laughs> you remember doing this at a young age or as you've got older um, no, it's definitely been a working progress for sure. It's, it's something that doesn't come to you the next day, right? It's just something that you find out along the way. And it's a whole process of discovery, right? Um, every, like the, the diverse nature of everyone's backgrounds for sure, but also being a blessing as well, because it's taught me, um, how to, how to be open as well. Um, and really welcoming everyone's opinions and just um, seeing how I can use that to my advantage too. So much. We, this You get the last word on the podcast. That's how we always finish. So. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm very honoured to be on this podcast and um, to, to feel like I've done the smallest bit of um, inspiration is uh, <laughs> a huge achievement for me. So thank you. So keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Saki. <laughs> 